Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads, The Woman in White, the great psychological thriller from Wilkie Collins, first released in 1860, and the seventh book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television, and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. Now, without further ado, here's Marilyn to read us Wilkie Collins, The Woman in White. The story, continued by Vincent Gilmore of Chancery Lane. Solicitor. 1. I write these lines at the request of my friend, Mr. Walter Hartwright. They are intended to convey a description of certain events which seriously affected Miss Fairley's interests, and which took place after the period of Mr. Hartwright's departure from Limbridge House. There is no need for me to say whether my own opinion does or does not sanction the disclosure of the remarkable family story, of which my narrative forms an important component part. Mr. Hartwright has taken that responsibility on himself, and circumstances yet to be related will show that he has amply earned the right to do so if he chooses to exercise it. The plan he has adopted for presenting the story to others, in the most truthful and most vivid manner, requires that it should be told at each successive stage in the march of events by the persons who were directly concerned in those events at the time of their occurrence. My appearance here as narrator is the necessary consequence of this arrangement. I was present during the sojourn of Sir Percival Glyde in Cumberland, and was personally concerned in one important result of his short residence under Mr. Fairley's roof. It is my duty, therefore, to add these new links to the chain of events, and to take up the train itself at the point where, for the present, only Mr. Hartwright has dropped it. I arrived at Limbridge House on Friday, the 2nd of November. My object was to remain at Mr. Fairley's until the arrival of Sir Percival Glyde. If that event led to the appointment of any given day for Sir Percival's union with Miss Fairley, I was to take the necessary instructions back with me to London, and to occupy myself in drawing the ladies' marriage settlement. On the Friday, I was not favoured by Mr. Fairley with an interview. He had been, or had fancied himself to be, an invalid for years past, and he was not well enough to receive me. Miss Halcombe was the first member of the family whom I saw. She met me at the house door and introduced me to Mr. Hartwright, who had been staying at Limeridge for some time past. I did not see Miss Fairley until later in the day, at dinner-time. She was not looking well, and I was sorry to observe it. She's a sweet, lovable girl, as amiable and attentive to everyone about her as her excellent mother used to be, though, personally speaking, she takes after her father. Mrs. Fairley had dark eyes and hair, and her elder daughter, Miss Halcombe, strongly reminds me of her. Miss Fairley played to us in the evening. Not so well as usual, I thought. We had a rubber at whist, a mere profanation, so far as play was concerned, of that noble game. 
I had been favorably impressed by Mr. Hartwright on our first introduction to one another, but I soon discovered that he was not free from the social failings incidental to his age. There are three things that none of the young men of the present generation can do. They can't sit over their wine, they can't play at whist, and they can't pay a lady a compliment. Mr. Hartwright was no exception to the general rule. Otherwise, even in those early days, and on that short acquaintance, he struck me as being a modest and gentlemanlike young man. So the Friday passed. I say nothing about the more serious matters which engaged my attention on that day. The anonymous letter to Miss Fairley, the measures I thought it right to adopt when the matter was mentioned to me, and the conviction I entertained that every possible explanation of the circumstances would be readily afforded by Sir Percival Glyde, having all been fully noticed, as I understand, in the narrative which precedes this. On the Saturday, Mr. Hartwright had left before I'd got down to breakfast. Miss Fairley kept her room all day, and Miss Helcombe appeared to me to be out of spirits. The house was not what it used to be in the time of Mr. and Mrs. Philip Fairley. I took a walk by myself in the forenoon, and looked about at some of the places which I first saw when I was staying at Limbridge to transact family business more than thirty years since. They were not what they used to be either. At two o'clock, Mr. Fairley sent to say he was well enough to see me. He had not altered, at any rate, since I first knew him. His talk was to the same purpose as usual, all about himself and his ailments, his wonderful coins, and his matchless Rembrandt etchings. The moment I tried to speak of the business that had brought me to his house, he shut his eyes and said— I upset him. I persisted in upsetting him by returning again and again to the subject. All I could ascertain was that he looked on his niece's marriage as a settled thing, that her father had sanctioned it, that he sanctioned it himself, that it was a desirable marriage, and that he should be personally rejoiced when the worry of it was over. As to the settlements, if I would consult his niece, and afterwards dive as deeply as I pleased into my own knowledge of the family affairs, and get everything ready, and limit his share in the business as guardian to saying yes at the right moment, why, of course, he would meet my views, and everybody else's views, with infinite pleasure. In the meantime, there I saw him, a helpless sufferer, confined to his room. Did I think he looked as if he wanted teasing? <laughs> no. Then why tease him? I might, perhaps, have been a little astonished at this extraordinary absence of all self-assertion on Mr. Fairley's part, in the character of guardian, if my knowledge of the family affairs had not been sufficient to remind me that he was a single man, and that he had nothing more than a life interest in the Limbridge property. As matters stood, therefore, I was neither surprised nor disappointed at the result of the interview. Mr. Fairley had simply justified my expectations, and there was an end to it. Sunday was a dull day, out of doors and in. 
a letter arrived from me from Sir Percival Glyde's solicitor, acknowledging the receipt of my copy of the anonymous letter and my accompanying statement of the case. Miss Fairley joined us in the afternoon, looking pale and depressed, and altogether unlike herself. I had some talk with her, and ventured on a delicate allusion to Sir Percival. She listened, and said nothing. All other subjects he pursued willingly, but this subject she allowed to drop. I began to doubt whether she might not be repenting of her engagement, just as young ladies often do when repentance comes too late. On Monday, Sir Percival Glyde arrived. I found him to be a most prepossessing man, so far as manners and appearance were concerned. He looked rather older than I had expected, his head being bald over the forehead, and his face somewhat marked and worn, but his movements were as active and his spirits as high as a young man's. His meeting with Miss Halcombe was delightfully hearty and unaffected, and his reception of me, upon my being presented to him, was so easy and pleasant that we got on together like old friends. Miss Fairley was not with us when he arrived, but she entered the room about ten minutes afterwards. Sir Percival rose and paid his compliments with perfect grace. His evident concern on seeing the change for the worse in the young lady's looks was expressed with a mixture of tenderness and respect, with an unassuming delicacy of tone, voice, and manner which did equal credit to his good breeding and his good sense. I was rather surprised, under these circumstances, to see that Miss Fairley continued to be constrained and uneasy in his presence, and that she took the first opportunity of leaving the room again. Sir Percival neither noticed the restraint in her reception of him, nor her sudden withdrawal from our society. He had not obtruded his attentions on her while she was present, and he did not embarrass Miss Halcombe by any allusion to her departure when she was gone. His tact and taste were never at fault on this or on any other occasion while I was in his company at Limbridge House. As soon as Miss Fairley had left the room, he spared us all embarrassment on the subject of the anonymous letter by adverting to it of his own accord. He had stopped in London on his way from Hampshire, had seen his solicitor, had read the documents forwarded by me, and had travelled on to Cumberland, anxious to satisfy our minds by the speediest and the fullest explanation that words could convey. On hearing him express himself to this effect, I offered him the original letter, which I had kept for his inspection. He thanked me, and declined to look at it, saying that he had seen the copy and that he was quite willing to leave the original in our hands. The statement itself, on which he immediately entered, was as simple and satisfactory as I had all along anticipated it would be. 
Mrs. Catherick, he informed us, had in past years laid him under some obligations for faithful services rendered to his family connections and to himself. She had been doubly unfortunate in being married to a husband who had deserted her, and in having an only child whose mental faculties had been, well, in a disturbed condition from a very early age. Although her marriage had removed her to a part of Hampshire far distant from the neighborhood in which Sir Percival's property was situated, he had taken care not to lose sight of her. His friendly feelings towards the poor woman, in consideration of her past services, having been greatly strengthened by his admiration of the patience and courage with which she supported her calamities. In course of time, the symptoms of mental affliction in her unhappy daughter increased to such a serious extent as to make it a matter of necessity to place her under proper medical care. Mrs. Catherick herself recognized this necessity, but she also felt the prejudice common to persons occupying her respectable station against allowing her child to be admitted as a pauper into a public asylum. Sir Percival had respected this prejudice, as he respected honest independence of feeling in any rank of life, and had resolved to mark his grateful sense of Mrs. Catherick's early attachment to the interests of himself and his family by defraying the expense of her daughter's maintenance in a trustworthy private asylum. To her mother's regret, and to his own regret— the unfortunate creature had discovered the share which circumstances had induced him to take in placing her under restraint, and had conceived the most intense hatred and distrust of him in consequence. To that hatred and distrust, which had expressed itself in various ways in the asylum, the anonymous letter, written after her escape, was plainly attributable. If Miss Halcombe's or Mr. Gilmore's recollection of the document did not confirm that view, or if they wished for any additional particulars about the asylum, the address of which he mentioned, as well as the names and addresses of the two doctors on whose certificates the patient was admitted, he was ready to answer any question and to clear up any uncertainty. He had done his duty to the unhappy young woman by instructing his solicitor to spare no expense in tracing her and in restoring her once more to medical care, and he was now only anxious to do his duty towards Miss Fairley and towards her family in the same plain, straightforward way. I was the first to speak in answer to this appeal. My own course was plain to me. It is the great beauty of the law that it can dispute any human statement made under any circumstances and reduced to any form. If I had felt professionally called upon to set up a case against Sir Percival Glyde, on the strength of his own explanation, I could have done so beyond all doubt. But my duty did not lie in this direction. My function was of the purely judicial kind. I was to weigh the explanation we had just heard, to allow all due force to the high reputation of the gentleman who offered it, and to decide honestly whether the probabilities, on Sir Percival's own showing, were plainly with him or plainly against him.' 
my own conviction was that they were plainly with him, and I accordingly declare that his explanation was, to my mind, unquestionably a satisfactory one. Miss Halcombe, after looking at me very earnestly, said a few words on her side to the same effect, with a certain hesitation of manner, however, which the circumstances did not seem to me to warrant. I am unable to say, positively, whether Sir Percival noticed this or not. My opinion is that he did, seeing that he pointedly resumed the subject, although he might now, with all propriety, have allowed it to drop. "'If my plain statement of facts had only been addressed to Mr. Gilmore,' he said, "'I should consider any further reference to this unhappy matter as unnecessary. "'I may fairly expect Mr. Gilmore, as a gentleman, to believe me on my word, "'and when he has done me that justice, "'all discussion of the subject between us has come to an end. "'But my position with a lady is not the same. "'I owe to her,' what I would concede to no man alive, a proof of the truth of my assertion. You cannot ask for that proof, Miss Halcombe, and it is therefore my duty to you, and still more to Miss Fairley, to offer it. May I beg that you will write at once to the mother of this unfortunate woman, to Mrs. Catherick, to ask for her testimony in support of the explanation which I have just offered to you. I saw Miss Halcombe change colour and look a little uneasy. Sir Percival's suggestion, politely as it was expressed, appeared to her, as it appeared to me, to point very delicately at the hesitation which her manner had betrayed a moment or two since. "'I hope, Sir Percival, you don't do me the injustice who suppose that I distrust you,' she said quickly. Oh, certainly not, Miss Halcombe. I make my proposal purely as an act of attention to you. Will you excuse my obstinacy if I still venture to press it? He walked to the writing-table as he spoke, drew a chair to it, and opened the paper-case. Let me beg you to write the note as a favour to me. It need not occupy you more than a few minutes. You have only to ask Mrs. Catherick two questions. First, if her daughter was placed in the asylum with her knowledge and approval. Secondly, if the share I took in the matter was such as to merit the expression of her gratitude towards myself. Mr. Gilmore's mind is at ease on this unpleasant subject, and your mind is at ease. Pray set my mind at ease also by writing the note. You oblige me to grant your request, Sir Percival, when I would much rather refuse it. With those words, Miss Halcombe rose from her place and went to the writing-table. Sir Percival thanked her, handed her a pen, and then walked away towards the fireplace. Miss Fairley's little Italian greyhound was lying on the rug. He held out his hand and called to the dog good-humouredly. "'Come, Nina, we remember each other, don't we?' The little beast, cowardly and cross-grained as pet dogs usually are, looked up at him sharply, shrank away from his outstretched hand, whined, shivered, and hid itself under a sofa. It was scarcely possible that he could have been put out by such a trifle as the dog's reception of him, but I observed, nevertheless, that he walked away towards the window very suddenly. Perhaps his temper is irritable at times— if so, I can sympathize with him. 
My temper is irritable at times, too. Miss Halcombe was not long in writing the note. When it was done, she rose from the writing table and handed the open sheet of paper to Sir Percival. He bowed, took it from her, folded it up immediately without looking at the contents, sealed it, wrote the address, and handed it back to her in silence. I never saw anything more gracefully and more becomingly done in my life. You insist on my posting this letter, Sir Percival? I beg you will post it, he answered. And now that it is written and sealed up, allow me to ask one or two last questions about the, the unhappy woman to whom it refers. I have read the communication which Mr. Gilmore kindly addressed to my solicitor, describing the circumstances under which the writer of the anonymous letter was identified. But there are certain points to which that statement does not refer. Did Anne Catherick see Miss Fairley? Certainly not, replied Miss Halcombe. Did she see you? No. She saw nobody from the house then, except a certain Mr. Hartwright, who accidentally met with her in the churchyard here. Nobody else. Mr. Hartwright was employed at Limeridge as a drawing-master, I believe. Is he a member of one of the watercolour societies? I believe he is, answered Miss Holcombe. He paused for a moment, as if he was thinking over the last answer, and then added, "'Did you find out where Anne Catherick was living when she was in this neighbourhood? "'Yes, at a farm on the moor called Todd's Corner. "'It is a duty we all owe to the poor creature herself to trace her. "'She may have said something at Todd's Corner which may help us to find her. "'I will go there and make inquiries on the chance. "'In the meantime,' As I cannot prevail on myself to discuss this painful subject with Miss Fairley, may I beg, Miss Halcombe, that you will kindly undertake to give her the necessary explanation, deferring it, of course, until you have received the reply to that note. Miss Halcombe promised to comply with his request. He thanked her, nodded pleasantly, and left us to go and establish himself in his own room. As he opened the door... The cross-grained greyhound poked out her sharp muzzle from under the sofa and barked and snapped at him. "'A good morning's work, Miss Halcombe,' I said as soon as we were alone. "'Here is an anxious day, well ended already.' "'Yes,' she answered. "'No doubt. I am very glad your mind is satisfied.' "'My mind? Surely with that note in your hand your mind is at ease, too.' "'Oh, "'Yes. How can it be otherwise? I know the thing could not be,' she went on, speaking more to herself than to me. "'But I almost wish Walter Hartwright had stayed here long enough to be present at the explanation, and to hear the proposal to me to write this note.' I was a little surprised, perhaps a little piqued also, by these last words. "'Events, it is true, connected Mr. Hartwright very remarkably with the affair of the letter, and I readily admit that he conducted himself, all things considered, with great delicacy and discretion. But I am quite at a loss to understand what useful influence his presence could have exercised in relation to the effect of Sir Percival's statement on your mind or mine.' "'It was only a fancy. There is no need to discuss it, Mr. Gilmore. Your experience ought to be, and is, the best guide I can desire.'
I did not altogether like her thrusting the whole responsibility in this marked manner on my shoulders. If Mr. Fairley had done it, I should not have been surprised. But resolute, clear-minded Miss Halcombe was the very last person in the world whom I should have expected to find shrinking from the expression of an opinion of her own. If any doubts still trouble you, I said, why not mention them to me at once? Tell me plainly. Have you any reason to distrust Sir Percival Glyde? None whatever. Do you see anything improbable or contradictory in his explanation? How can I say I do, after the proof he has offered me of the truth of it? Can there be better testimony in his favour, Mr. Gilmore, than the testimony of the woman's mother? None better. If the answer to your note of inquiry proves to be satisfactory, I, for one, cannot see what more any friend of Sir Percival's can possibly expect from him. Then we will post the note, she said, rising to leave the room, and dismiss all further reference to the subject until the answer arrives. Don't attach any weight to my hesitation. I can give no better reason for it than that I have been over-anxious about Laura lately, and anxiety, Mr. Gilmore, unsettles the strongest of us. She left me abruptly her naturally firm voice faltering as she spoke these last words. A sensitive, vehement, passionate nature, a woman of ten thousand in these trivial, superficial times. I had known her from her earliest years. I had seen her tested, as she grew up, in more than one trying family crisis, and my long experience made me attach an importance to her hesitation under the circumstances here detailed, which I should certainly not have felt in the case of another woman. I could see no cause for any uneasiness or any doubt, but she had made me a little uneasy, and a little doubtful nevertheless. In my youth, I should have chafed and fretted under the irritation of my own unreasonable state of mind. In my age, <laughs> I knew better, and went out philosophically to walk it off. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads The Woman in White. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This is the seventh book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. We invite you to go back and listen to Marilyn read A Room with a View, Pride and Prejudice, The Age of Innocence, Anne of Green Gables, Jane Eyre, and A Christmas Carol. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.